to John. Pretty crazy. Yeah, some of you are a little too excited about that. What do you need to know about someone if you're to get to know them? Well, one of the things you need to know, one of the most important things I would say, is what are they passionate about? If you really want to know someone, you need to know what they are passionate about, what they talk about the most, what they love the most, what they hate the most is going to reveal to you what they are most passionate about. And the same is true with God. If you really want to know God, you must understand what he is passionate about. And you know what God is most passionate about by knowing what he loves, what he hates, what he pursues. The Bible is absolutely clear beyond any doubt what God is most passionate about. But I do want to say this, that when it comes to passions, what separates God from everyone else is that God is most passionate about what is of supreme worth and value. God loves and is most passionate about what is of ultimate supreme value and worth. And what God loves and is passionate about is what is right to be passionate about. And what he hates is what is right to hate. And so God's passions are morally right or wrong, depending on whether we agree with God or not. And that is so much unlike our passions, isn't it? (laughs) So what is God most passionate about? Well, how well do you know God, (laughs) right? The Bible is absolutely clear that God is most passionate about his glory. That is why God is most passionate about worship. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says this, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 48 verse 11, just a sampling, right? For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is most passionate about his glory. He's most passionate about it shining forth. And God hates that which opposes and undermines his glory. This concluding passage is about God pursuing his glory supremely by creating a people who will worship him and judging those who fail to do so. This passage is really about God being God. It is really about God's passion for his glory. And this passage will only make sense to you if you understand who God is. And if you are aligned, if your passions are aligned with the truth of who God is. Otherwise, this passage who God is, will be completely meaningless to you. In fact, you will hate the reality of God if you are not aligned to the truth of who God is. If your heart is not rightly aligned with God, you will hate who the God of the Bible is. But if you know this God of the Bible, if you are aligned with the truth of this Bible, the God of this Bible, you will worship him and you will say that God is to be praised. 
You will agree with God. My prayer is that you would see what God is most passionate about and that he would cause that same passion to be developed in you and that you would love what God is passionate about to the degree that God is passionate about it. And that would make this church a healthy church and that would make us a healthy people. In verse 7 through 9, God makes this incredible promise. He promises to create a multitude of worshipers who will worship him according to the truth. The book of Isaiah can be summarized like this. All right? You can imagine this news heading. Israel fails to worship God, even though she has given every privilege that should have led her to worship God in truth. <laughs> she was given every, every privilege outwardly you could ever be given. Just think about this. God literally birthed or created Israel in order to make a people who would worship him the right way, according to his prescribed way. He even delivered them and provided for them and even chastised them. That's loving. That's what a loving father does, right? He did everything for them. But from the first to the very last chapters of Isaiah, God describes Israel as failing to worship him in a way that pleases him. In Isaiah 1, verse 10 through 14, we don't have time. God describes their worship as being utterly detestable. And then in Isaiah 66, verse 3 through 4 that we looked at last week, God describes their worship as being utterly detestable. Notice the very first chapter says the same thing the very last chapter says. God detests their worship. Because of Israel's failure to produce true worshipers, she is therefore like a barren woman whose future was hopeless. It was thought that God was cursing you if you were barren, which wasn't true, necessarily. But when you fail to produce worshipers of God, when you fail to produce worship in your heart, then yes, you are cursed by God. That is true. You are under his curse. The condition that Israel is in is the same condition that every one of us is in. We fail to worship God according to how he should be worshipped. If you read the Bible, you see that Israel is really just a reflection of you and of me. But in verse 7, God promises to intervene. And this is the good news. He promises to miraculously bring forth children from her who was barren. Notice verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Everything in these verses cries out miracle, <laughs> cries out amazing, miraculous work of God. All right? The suddenness and the quickness of the birth is miraculous. Read verse 16. So here we see that the curse is being reversed, that God is beginning to take away the curse. It's an amazing picture that God is at work here. That God is miraculously intervening. What can we say but God is at work? God is doing something that only he can do. Who are we talking about here that's giving birth? And who is being born, right? We're given the language here of land, a nation, Zion's children. And I think the one giving birth is the Jewish believing remnant in Acts 2. That's what I believe. At Pentecost, there were merely 120 Jews that were gathered together in the upper room. Not only that, but the day of Pentecost, there were Jews from all over the world who had gathered together to celebrate. 
And it is here in Acts 2 that the gospel was proclaimed by the apostles. And over 3,000 Jews were added to the church in one day. And in fact, you could say the church was born. (laughs) And I think the children being born is the worshiping people of God. It's the church. It is through the gospel presented by the apostles' preaching that the church begins to explode and goes throughout the whole world. Remember, they were persecuted. God brought persecution on them so that they would go and spread throughout the whole world. And the gospel went out to the whole world. Through this event, the Gentiles would be reached and drawn into the community of God. We are the children, the true Israel that is spoken of here, the worshipers of God. So what is brought out in a series of questions is the miraculous nature of this birth here. Who has heard of such a thing? No one has ever heard of such a thing like this before. And notice the series of questions in verse 8. And all of this is pointing to the fact that this is a miraculous work of God. It's his signature. It's his stamp. It's saying, I want you to know beyond any doubt that this is me who is doing this. That I stand outside of creation. I don't want you to have any doubt of what is happening, is who is behind this, and that this is a work of God. So what does this mean for us? It will stand out as an eternal reminder that God always accomplishes what he sets out to do, no matter how impossible it might appear to be. And we read that in verse 9. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? You see, God loves to work through impossible events. God loves to create these events that are impossible from our perspective for God to possibly fulfill his promise. God loves to show us how great he is. God loves to show us that he is beyond human comprehension, human ability. And so he creates these events where we are left hopeless and standing there saying, I need God to intervene. I need a miracle. And God loves to do that in order to show what he can do. In a sense, you might say God loves to show off. God loves to show off his power. And he can do that. He alone has the right to show off. God is showing that he's not like the idols, that he's not limited to the boundaries of man. And he does that through creating such circumstances where otherwise it would be impossible to happen without God. If we're to live by faith rather than fear, We must be aware that God always finishes what he begins. He always accomplishes what he promises, no matter what it looks like. And to believe God finishes what he starts, no matter how difficult, is simply what it means to live by faith. This is simply living by faith. and saying, God, I can't imagine how you could ever do this. There's no human possibility that you could fulfill these promises. Heaven and the the new Jerusalem, the glories of God appear to be so stupendous that beyond my imagination but God is saying that I want you to trust in me because I can do all things and I, I am doing this mighty work on purpose to show how great and magnificent I am so what is the right response to God's great promise of verses 7 through 9 the right response is to rejoice in it and take advantage of it as God's provision for you. We see that in verses 10 through 14. God is calling for those who love the church to rejoice in her. 
Those who love and care for the church's well-being are going to rejoice in her well-being. <laughs> Do you get that? Those who love the church are going to rejoice in her well-being. And those who love the church are going to mourn when she struggles, when she goes through difficulties. Notice verse 10. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her. How do you know if you are someone who is supposed to rejoice here? Because not everyone is being called to rejoice here. How do you know if you love the church and therefore should rejoice? How do you know if you care for her well-being? Well, this is my question for you. Do you rejoice even secretly at the downfall of the church? Or do you get sad when the church struggles, when the church fails, when the church goes through persecution? Your response to her in both cases indicates whether you care for the church or not. And throughout the Bible, notice this, the mark of godly men and women is that they mourn over the harm and the defeat of Jerusalem. Why? Because that is what the godly do. Because the godly love God's people. The enemies of God are those who rejoice at the downfall of God's people. The godly care about what God cares about, which is God's people. Do you love the church? Do you mourn over her loss? Do you rejoice in her well-being? If you do, then you're called to rejoice because God has good news for you. Verse 11 tells us why you who love the church should rejoice in her. Because the promise of verse 7 through 9 is for her well-being, is for your well-being. And her well-being is for your benefit. Think about that. The well-being of the church is for the benefit of God's people. And we see that in verse 11. That you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast. That you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. Rejoice because God will provide for you through taking care of his church. She will satisfy, console you through God's saving work among you. Notice the language of what God says he will do when he says that you are to drink deeply, to delight in her, to be satisfied in her abundance. Now, I want us to imagine the people of Israel who are thirsty and hungry for milk. They're like little babies, and they go for the milk, but nothing comes out. Nothing comes out. That is never good for a baby, is it? But that is the story of Israel. But God says the day is coming when this will not be the case for God's people. Now the nursing baby will find complete comfort and nourishment in her mother. There will never again be a discrepancy between need and supply. The reason for this is because God will provide nourishment to sustain his people through his church. Which comes through his word. Right? God comforts, encourages, God's comforts, his encouragement is mediated through the church as it proclaims the word of God and spreads the gospel. As the gospel of salvation is proclaimed, we are strengthened and we are able to persevere in the faith in this life. So what are you to do? This is my question for you is what are you to do in light of this? And the answer is you are to drink deeply. You are to be sustained. You are to fill yourself up. 
You're to gorge yourself in the life-sustaining word of God. And verses 12 through 4 expound on the greatness of God's provision that he will provide for his people through the church. And what this really means is that the church is responsible to care for and nourish God's sheep. Jesus said, said these words. He said, feed my sheep. He didn't say, entertain the sheep. And he didn't say, poison the sheep, did he? <laughs> he said, feed my sheep. And how does the church do that? The church feeds us through magnifying God, through proclaiming his word in the gospel. That is why we must focus on preaching, encouraging, singing, and teaching the Word of God. This also means that you and I have a responsibility as well. We are responsible to drink deeply of the comforts of the Word of God through hearing it through the church. Our priority in the church is to be nourished. You are to feed and draw out. We should not need to be coerced to come and hear and drink of the word of God. That should be something we delight to do. It should be something we want to do. I mean, I mean sheep should not be, have to be coerced to eat. It should be something they love to do. And what are you to do with being strengthened through the word of God? Well, the answer is you should be strengthened to persevere. And you should be strengthened to serve God's church through his word. You're to do this through the nourishment and strength you receive from the Word of God. When I climbed mountains when I was younger, I was all into climbing mountains, and um, before I would climb, we would pack our lunch, and we would make these peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and sometimes they looked pretty disgusting. Like you would make the sandwich, and you'd think, that's not going to be that good tasting. And so then you'd climb the mountain, and you'd get to the top, and you would open up your bag and take out the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and you were like, man, this is the best food I've ever had in my life, right? Because you needed the, the sustenance that that food was going to give you. We need the sustaining word of God. And that's exactly what God's word is for us today. It keeps us going. God also promises to judge all who refuse to worship him. You should notice the piling up of words here that describe the anger of God. In verses 15 through 16, God's anger is described as a fire, right? Three times in these verses. A fire is the holiness of God, the presence of God in his holiness, right? God's anger is expressed with images of chariots like the whirlwind. Chariots were like the, were like the tank in the Old Testament, Right? And, uh, and the, the whirlwind, perhaps, is kind of like the wheels. You know, a whirlwind is just this fury. A thunderstorm coming through, and you'd hear the sound of it. God's anger is also expressed like that of a sword that slays. And you notice in Revelation, it's the word of God is like a sword that comes out of his mouth. All he needs is the word, and it slays his enemies. The powerful word of God. The question is, who would God possibly be so angry at? And we are told what he's so angry at in verse 17. He is so angry at those who are very religious, but do not worship him his way. 
and the description of these religious people is that they are pursuing to purify themselves. And it's the same thing we saw in verse 4. They are working hard to purify and to cleanse themselves. They're taking great effort to make themselves right. But what does God think of their worship? The religion, the religious fury is like that of eating pig's flesh to him. It's an abomination. God's ab- God absolutely hates such worship. He's oppo- suppo- uh, totally opposed to it. And this is supposed to be shocking to us as we read this. Why does God hate it so much? Well, we don't have enough time to really go into it as we did last week. But God hates it because there is no delight in God that comes from, from the heart in the worship. Rather, all there is is a delighting to do evil. And so merely what they have here is an outward form, a routine, without a transformed heart behind it. God has not regenerated the heart to love God. And so their worship is vain and empty and worthless and is an abomination to God. So what is their end? What is their reward for their religious devotion? They shall come to an end together. They will face the judgment of God. The good news is that God can save you from his judgment. God can save you from his wrath. And there's only one way to be saved from God's wrath, and that's through Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Run to Jesus and be saved from his wrath this moment. Amazingly, God is going to use the church as a means to create worshipers out of those who are formerly refused to worship him. And we see that in verses 18 through 21. In order to create worshipers, God is going to gather together the nations to show them his glory in verse 18. And who are these whom God is going to gather? Well, God is, God is going to gather all those throughout the nations, or peoples from out all the nations of the world are going to be gathered together. And what is he going to do? He's going to magnify his glory to them. What better thing could God do? <laughs> you know, you think about it, what else would God do but magnify his glory? God will not just gather the nations, but he will set a sign, perhaps as a means to attract the nations to himself and to display his glory. We see that in verse 19. And I will set a sign among them. And so we have to ask, what might this sign be referring to? And I think the sign refers to to the cross. What other sign would there be? (laughs) Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. The cross is the place where the manifestation of God's glory is seen to its greatest extent. Jesus has manifested his glory through the cross like nowhere else. How will God do this? How will God display his glory? Will God use the church, us, as a means to accomplish his his purpose of displaying his glory? We see that in verse 19. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, who, that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. And they may declare my glory among the nations. And I believe the survivors are the remnants, the people of God. Right? And what are they doing? They're going to the farthest nations to do what? <laughs> what else would they do but proclaim the glory of God? 
What other message would they proclaim? There's no me- other message to give. And to this day, the gospel mission continues to go through the church to the world. The question is, will we have success? Should we really be confident that the church will fulfill God's purpose? And the good news is that God's mission will be successful, according to verses 20 through 21. The survivors will successfully bring the nations as an offering to the Lord. What an incredible testimony of God's plan being fulfilled. This is just telling us that it will be successful, that God will gather his people from throughout the world. And, and, and present them as an offering to himself. God also will make her successful by making Gentiles into priests and Levites. This is just an incredible thought. It, it wasn't the case that even all the Jews could be priests and Levites, right? But he will make Gentiles, Gentiles, priests and Levites. All of this is saying is that their worship will be acceptable. All of this language is symbolic meaning that their worship will be acceptable to God, that they will be completely acceptable to God, and he will make them righteous and holy worshipers before God by his grace, an acceptable offering to himself. John Piper famously said it this way, missions exist because worship doesn't yet exist all over the world. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. And what this means is that missions has everything to do with worship. We should be passionate for God's glory to be made known among the nations. This church should have a heart for missions, a desire for God's name to be known among the world and the nations around us so that God will be honored as he so rightly deserves. The ultimate destination for all those who are worshipers of God is a new heavens and a new earth. And so we contrast um, before the judgment that is coming with the new heavens and the new earth that God has prepared for those who love him. And the whole point here in verse 22 is that of security. You know, the old heavens and the old earth are often used throughout the Bible to describe security. The earth and its pillars will stand firm, right? If that is the case, then how much more does the new heavens and the new earth represent eternal security, unending security, perfect security? And what will we do in this new heaven and the new earth? Well, there's no question of what we will do in the new heaven and the new earth. What we will do in the new heaven and the new earth is we will worship God forever, And we see that in verse 23. And this worship will never get boring. Our joy will increase for eternity as we worship God and see his glory right before us. You would think that this is where the book ends. And I'm I'm trying to go quickly here. (laughs) You would think this is where the book ends, right? You would think, what a great place to end. This is perfect. Here we are in glory. But God says, no, (laughs) That is not the best place for this book to end. God has a better ending than many of us would ever imagine. Listen to what it says. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, 
and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Do you hear what it's saying here? Do you understand the, the point here that from heaven's glory, we will be able to look on the suffering torment of those who are suffering in the torment of hell forever? What exactly does God say that his people will witness? The picture is of a city dump. All the gross refuse would be thrown into the dump and it would be burned with fire. But in this case, the worm does not die. That's the difference. You know, a worm lives based on having food, right? When the food is gone, when everything they've eaten is gone, then the worm dies. But in this case, the food never ends. The corruptible bodies in hell will be corruptible forever. The food will be unending. It will be eternal torment. And that's the picture here. That's what it means that their worm shall not die. What does it mean that their fire shall not be quenched? Well, it means the holy righteousness of God will be present in hell with burning fire against those who have rebelled against him forever. But I want to say this, and we ask, what, what is this doing here? How can this be? Everything in the new heaven and new earth is going to assist our worship. So we need to ask, how might viewing those in torment assist our worship of God? Well, it will help us see the full manifestation of God's character. It will display both his justice and his grace. Someone described Isaiah as a diamond displaying the glory of God, right? The whole book is a diamond displaying the glory of God. We see the manifest perfections of God. And we see that in the gospel. But what we see when we look at his judgment is kind of a, a black cloth being put behind the diamond. The black cloth magnifies the glorious nature of the diamond. So when we look at the diamond in relationship to the black cloth from heaven's glory, when we look at hell and the judgment, we will say thanks be to God for his grace in a way we never could have done otherwise. If it were not for the grace of God, that's where I would have gone. And we will praise God and rejoice in God forever. We will see his justice. We will see his grace. We will see his vindication. No more will sin be glamorized or glorified. I could imagine someone saying, I don't want any part of that kind of a heaven. I wouldn't want to go to that heaven. And I understand that we cannot understand that from our perspective right now. I understand that right? But we are going to be changed. And I want us to understand that this is God's heaven. To have it any other way is not to have heaven at all. And God's way is always best. We bow to God. We don't determine what God does. God's way is always best. I could imagine someone saying that we should not speak so much of hell. How could we end such a book on hell? <laughs> But I want to remind you that Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else. Jesus clearly believed it was important for us to understand. Charles Spurgeon's mom understood that in the new heaven and the new earth, you will glorify God for hell and his judgments when she said to her son, Ah, oh, my son, if at the last great day you are condemned, remember your mother will say, Amen to your condemnation. 
Now, she didn't say that in an uncaring way. She said that after pleading with God for her son to be saved and after pleading with her son for his salvation. But she knew at the last day, if her son was not uh, someone who bowed to Jesus Christ, that even she would say amen to her son's condemnation. She was absolutely correct in what she said. And Charles Spurgeon praised his praying and preaching mother who spoke to him the truth. And he did turn to Christ and was saved. You could say that this book ends exactly as God wanted it to, with a view to worshiping God in light of the totality of his glorious character. Even the judgment of God will cause God's people to worship him. So God is going to glorify his name. That is what he does, and that is what he pursues. That is what it means to be God. For you and me, everything depends on how you respond to this glorious God. There are only two types of responses in this room. There's only two types of responses in this world. Either you will fall down before God and gladly worship him, or you will foolishly rebel against God and refuse to worship him. Which category are you in? There are only two possible destinies for everyone in this room. There is eternal life for those who gladly bow and worship God, and there is eternal judgment for those who foolishly rebel against God. Daniel 12 verse 2 says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. What is your destiny? If you want to live right in light of God's glory, you must have a clear view of the destiny of both the worshiper and the rebel. We need to see the destiny of both directions if we're to live with a right perspective today. Praise God for his word of truth. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, God. We confess, God, that we are slow. We are slow at understanding the fullness of the glory of God. God, we are so slow at comprehending the greatness of your glory. But God, I thank you for revealing yourself to us. I thank you that you have spoken to us and you have not shied away from telling us the truth. Lord, some of these things are so hard for us. They're so difficult for us. But I pray that you give us hearts to embrace the truth of your word. I pray that we would not manipulate it or change it or run away from it, but that we would bow to the living God. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and for the great salvation that you have brought today. And I pray that you would bring salvation even to us today. May you save. And Lord, I pray that we would all worship you with louder and more clear voices in light of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.